0: Pastoral abuse is something that is beginning to appear in our Christian newspapers uh, more and more, especially uh, over in the United States. Figures like Mark Driscoll, C.J. Mahaney, even people like Bill Hybels have all been embroiled in accusations of abuse of their authority, overstepping the mark as pastors, demanding of church members what the Bible doesn't demand of them. Really, they're sort of acting in a dictatorial way, rather than loving their congregations, They're actually abusing their congregations. And our passage this morning as we look at it is partly about how leaders are to behave and partly how people are to behave under leadership. Now the Bible is clear that the church should have leaders, but how does that fit with the rest of the church? How does that fit with how the rest of the church is to behave? And interestingly, as we look at this section, we're to remember that the whole of chapter 13 has been about love. Remember chapter 12 is about, uh, sorry, chapter 11 is about faith, chapter 12 about hope, and now chapter 13 about love. Actually, this whole section is about loving. Loving leaderships, loving churches. And it's quite timely this morning as we look at this, as later on the members will consider uh, Richard as a leader, as an elder uh, for our church. So how is the church to react to their leaders? Well, the first thing we see, I'm sorry I don't have the uh, slides on the screen uh, this morning. First thing we need to remember is that we're to trust, obey, and pray for your under-shepherds. Trust, obey, and pray for your under-shepherds. Have a look again at verses 17 to 19. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy. And not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honourably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, in order that I may, soon, uh, that I may be restored to you, the sooner. <clears throat> I should say, obeying leaders is a weird thing for a leader to preach about, uh, I have to say. It's a little bit weird, uh, sort of standing here and, and talking about what it means to obey a leader. It's so tempting for me to say, well, this is what it means. It means to do everything that I say. That's what, that's what my simple heart is telling me to, to, to do with this message. So because of that, let's stick as closely to the text as we can. Because actually, we want to know what the Bible says, don't we, about leaders, not what I think about leaders, because I'm in that position, and I'm a bit biased uh, by my situation. So this is where the authority lies, in the word of God. So we're going to read it slowly and carefully this morning. What does the God's word actually say about how we're to treat leaders? Well, it says here that we're to obey our leaders. Now, I'm a little bit disappointed with the ESV, the English Standard Version that we use as our translation. The word that's here used for obey is more often translated in the Bible as trust. Be persuaded by. Have confidence in. So it's actually the same word as you see in verse 18, where it says, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience. That word to be sure, to have confidence, to trust. That's the same word that's used here for what we are to do with leaders. It's not the same verb as in the Bible it tells slaves to do with their masters. It's actually much deeper, if you think about it in that sense, than obey. Because you can obey someone... Without trusting them, can't you? Without having confidence in them. I remember uh, when I worked in an office for a couple of years, uh, when I started working in the office, there was already a mediation process going on between the, the departmental head and the department. There was an awful lot of mistrust in the office. People did what they were told, but they didn't trust the person who was telling them. Whenever they were asked to do something, they were suspicious of why they'd been asked to do it. Sometimes people in the office would blindly follow rules just to try and get the person who was the departmental head in trouble. They would obey, actually, to to get them in trouble. They obeyed, but always sort of watching over their shoulder to see what was happening. There was no giving the benefit of the doubt in that office, and it meant that in many ways it was a harsh and joyless office because of that. There was no trust, really, between the leaders, if you like, and the people who were in the office. So here we're called to do the harder thing. Actually, rather than obey, we're called to trust our leaders. Have confidence in them. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Does that mean, then, that we're not obliged to obey our leaders? Well, not at all. The context of the letter would make that very strange. All the way through the letter, actually, we've been seeing that we're being compared to the wilderness generation. The ones who came out of Egypt... Uh, and didn't make it into the promised land. If you remember, those people, well, what was one of the ways that they were rebellious, what marked them out as rebellious, was their disregard for their leaders. They disobeyed Moses again and again, didn't they? But they also mistrusted him. They did the the deeper thing wrong as well. Because they actually say at points that they believed that he'd taken them out in the wilderness to have them slaughtered. So I put Exodus 14:11 uh, there on the back of your notice sheets. This is what they say to him at one point. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? That was their attitude to their leaders. So they were getting, you know, they were moving camp when they were told, but they didn't trust. And then when they were told to go to the promised land, they didn't obey. So it'd be strange in the context of the letter not to have obedience as part of this. But there are two other clues as well. We're also told in that verse there that we're to submit to our leaders. So obey your leaders and submit to them. Now that word submit, in, in that sense, is actually stronger than the word obey that we had uh, translated as obey. It's only used here in the New Testament, but it's closely related to that a uh, word in Galatians 2 verse 5, which again I put on the back of your sheets. Yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ, So that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment. It means really to give in under someone, uh, to surrender to someone, to put yourself under someone else's authority. That word submit then actually then carries a lot of the ideas of obey really, that we'd normally think of it. Putting yourself under somebody else's authority. And that is what the church is to do with its leaders put themselves under their authority. That's one of the reasons that we have a formal membership in church, is so that uh, we're able to say, these people are under the elders' authority. Uh, it's more clear as to who we are to care for within our church. Because actually, the authority isn't there to abuse, is it? The authority's there to care, but we'll see that in a moment. But that just makes the process a lot, a lot simpler, doesn't it? People who've committed to one another in that relationship. The second clue though that this is about obedience as well is that that word translated leaders is literally those who rule over you. Now again, you might want to think about how you think about leadership. You might think about facilitators or organizers or, or things like here. But here the word is to rule. It's the same that's used as governors and military commanders. They rule their, their groups. It's used of Christ in Matthew's gospel. So Matthew 2, verse 6, again on the back of your notice sheets. And you, it's a Christmas one, isn't it? And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For you shall, from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. It's saying there that this ruler will be a shepherd. It's actually used of Christ in his leadership role. So there's a sense in which, by definition, leaders lead. They command, they govern. And what the church is called to do is have confidence in them and submit to them. But does that mean that leaders can do what they like? Well, not at all. Because actually with all authority uh, in the Bible, it's delegated authority from God. Where leaders act out of line with the revealed will of God, it's right to challenge them. We do it carefully. We do it soberly. We're told not to be told to be careful about making accusations against elders in the Bible. But leaders are not infallible. Uh, So this does not mean that you have to give blind obedience uh, to leaders any more than a wife's submission in marriage means blind obedience to her husband. But given that, we're not only to submit to our leaders, but to trust them. Which is that deeper level, isn't it? Have confidence in them. It means that we won't always be looking for the wrong motives in them. We won't always be fault-finding with them. We'll trust them for what God has given them to do. And what is it that God has given them to do? Well, it's to keep watch over your souls. To keep watch over your souls. They're doing the job of a shepherd, a pastor. Not watching sheep, but watching souls. So the reason that we are to trust and submit to our leaders is that they are under-shepherds of the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus. They are there to look out for us and to look after us. So, leaders are not there to rule for their own good, but for the good of the whole church, to bring glory to God. It's a bit like marriage. The husband is to lead in marriage in the Bible. But the husband is to lead in a sacrificial way that is good for his wife glorifying to God the husband shouldn't have to be constantly saying submit to me because the decisions he will be making will be for the good of his wife for the good of the family so again with leaders of the church yes they have authority real authority God given authority but they're to use it for the good of the church not for the good of themselves they're to serve sacrificially Like a husband serves his wife and family. And that's one of the reasons, if you think about it, that one of the qualifications of being a leader of a church is that he needs to know how to care for his family. So elders of the church are to care for souls. And the decisions that they make should reflect that. The way they spend their time as elders should reflect that. If a leader has no love for people and their souls then there's no point in him being a leader. Especially since we're told here that leaders will have to give an account. So to clarify here, we have to give an account. All of us are responsible for our own actions. Let me say that. All of us are responsible for our own actions before God. But leaders are responsible for how they've led the people that God has given into their care. They are in some sense accountable for the flock. The sheep may wander off, And they bear their own responsibility for that. But so does the shepherd. The shepherd is there to care for that sheep. So is it something the shepherd has done or not done? Could that be part of what's going on? Have they been a lazy shepherd? Have they been a neglectful shepherd? Have they been a burdensome shepherd? A good shepherd will be aware and care for his flock. But remember, this is addressed to the church. So how could you help your leaders shepherd you? Are there things that you need to tell them? If you're going to be accountable, uh, sorry, if, if they're going to be accountable for you, are you going to be accountable to them? You see, the sheep in a big way play a big part in being shepherded. Most of the issues people have in church in their life are not as obvious as sheep's problems. I'm really glad David's here this morning. He can tell you about sort of obvious sheep's problems. But actually the problems we have are are, are much deeper within, aren't they? How could you help your leaders care for you? So is it all down to the leaders then to make sacrifices and care for others? Let's have a look at the second half of verse 17. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It's part of the role of the church to work for the leaders joy it's a reciprocal relationship that we have elsewhere we're told that leaders are to work for their church's joy and here we're told that churches are to work for their leaders joy because the last thing that you want is a grumpy joyless leader who begrudgingly leads you here it says it would be of no advantage to you so it's worth having a think isn't it what could you do to bring your leaders joy. I'll put that as our over coffee question if you want to think about it a bit more. But can I let you into a secret as a leader about what brings leaders joy? It's not when you say that you love their messages when they preach on a Sunday morning or Sunday evening or their Bible studies midweek. It's not when you say you love their messages, but when you live them. That's what brings a leader real joy. Varying numbers of people on a Sunday morning or Sunday evening will tell me how much they've loved the message. And it's nice, but I could live without that. It's not necessary, necessarily. But what creates far more joy in my soul is when I see you guys living it. People at church loving one another. People reaching out to their friends and neighbours and colleagues. People growing in their love and knowledge of Jesus and his word. That brings a leader real joy. When you live their messages, not just like them. Just a thought, just as a a leader. But what could you do to bring joy uh, to your leaders this week, or this month, or this year? Because leaders need you. Leaders are not infallible, and they're also not independent. Have a look at verses 18 and 19. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honourably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. See, the author here asks for their prayers. I don't think this is disingenuous, you know, when you just sort of say, oh, please pray for me. I think he really wants them to pray. I think he really believes that their prayers will make a difference. Why are they asking for prayers? Well, the easy answer is there in verse 19. Uh, He wants to be restored to them sooner. He wants to see them again soon. It seems as though at some point he's been part of this group that he's writing to, part of their fellowship, and he wants to see them again. And he believes their prayer will make a difference. So he urges them, literally encourages them, exhorts them to pray. The slightly harder answer is the beginning of, uh, so the middle of verse 18. Uh, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honourably in all things. He wants their prayer because he and his ministry team, we, which suddenly comes in at this point, are sure that they're doing the right thing. He wants their prayer because he's confident that his message and his ministry are honouring to God. His message all the way through has been for them not to turn back to the way that they lived before. His message, not to turn back to Judaism, he's saying, is right and God-honouring. So pray for his ministry. Pray that he might get to see them soon so he can set them straight. That's partly what he's been doing in this letter, isn't it? It's as if he's saying, I'm sure that I'm heading in the right God-honouring direction. Now give me a boost by your prayers to keep going in that direction. So he's praying that they'll help him in his ministry because he's sure that his ministry is right. So he prays for that adrenaline injection of prayer to boost his ministry. And he knows their prayers will do this. So he assures them that they'll boost him in the right direction, if you like. He knows that he's acting out of a clear conscience. So do you pray for your leaders and their ministry among us? Are you confident in their message and ministry? Do you think your leaders pray for you? We do. Do you pray for them? Well, as they are to pray for him, uh, he also prays for them. Have a look at verses uh, 20 and 21. And this is as you are equipped by the great shepherd. As you are equipped by the great shepherd, 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The author then appears to sort of almost finish his letter with a typical ending. Not quite a yours sincerely, though that would have been quite helpful if he would assigned his name, wouldn't it? We'd know who, who wrote it then, wouldn't we? But it's much more than a sign-off. He continues to teach and encourage them. We said this is a reciprocal relationship that they have, leader and people. Well, he asked them to pray for him, and now he prays for them. He prays to the God of peace, the one who has brought peace to our rebel race, the one who has made peace by shedding his own precious son's blood. And he's mentioned here as the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Now, the words there are similar to what the normal formula in the Old Testament where God brought his people out of Egypt. It's as though Jesus had been brought from the dead. It's sort of saying here that the identifying mark of God now is not the bringing out of Egypt, but the raising of Jesus from the dead. So the God that we pray to is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob who brought them out of the land of Egypt. But here he says he's the God who raised Jesus from the dead. That is now the identifying mark of God. His great act in history is Jesus' death and resurrection. And Jesus himself is the great shepherd of the sheep. Now in the Old Testament, again, that was God, the good shepherd, who shepherded his people. Jesus took that title on himself, didn't he, and called himself the good shepherd. So almost as though he's saying, Moses is not the great shepherd, though he actually was a shepherd. David is not the great shepherd, though he actually was a shepherd as well. Actually, Jesus is the great shepherd. Better than all the shepherds before him. How did he shepherd his sheep? Well, he did it by his own blood, the blood of the eternal covenant. What is it that makes this good shepherd so good? Well, he lays down his life for the sheep. A lesson there for all under-shepherds too, because that's what we're to do, lay down our lives for the sheep. He's shepherding them. He saves them. He rescues them. He brings them home by the shedding of his own blood. And the author wants his readers to remember that. Remember Jesus, how great he is. That's been his theme all the way through the letter, hasn't it? How this leader is so much greater than all the leaders that have gone before him. So that's who he's addressing, the God of our great shepherd, Jesus Christ. So what does he want God to do? We see it there in verse 21, to equip us for all that we need to do his will. Equip us for all that we need to do his will. Augustine prayed to God, apparently, it's believed, command what you will, ask what you will, but give what you command. Ask what you will, but give what you command. And if you think about it, that answers so much in the Christian life, doesn't it? God commands us to have faith, and then he gives us that faith. God commands us to repent, And then he grants us repentance. God commands us to do his will. And here we see that God equips us to do his will. That we might do what's pleasing to him. God never asks us to do something that we cannot do. Because he stands there willing to give what we need to do his will. Sometimes things can seem impossible. But is it possible that we haven't actually asked him for what we need to do it? Is it possible that we're trying to do his will with our own strength and our own resources? Imagine that uh, you get home this afternoon and the government rang you on the phone and said, hello, this is Her Majesty's government. Uh, We're ringing to ask you if you would build HS2, speed Linked rail 2, from north to the south uh, of England. That's the way it's gonna run, isn't it? Or south to north, depending on which way you look at it. And you ask that, well, okay, but would I actually need to do all the building myself? Uh, How much would it cost me for all the concrete? That would be a little bit strange to sort of answer that back, wouldn't you? Because what fool would think the government would expect you, by yourself, to do all these things without their help and their resources? They wouldn't expect you to pay for the concrete, would they? They wouldn't expect you to lay every single part of the road yourself. They will put at your disposal all the resources of the land. Or how much they've got left by the time they get to to HS2. But if Her majesty's government could understand that, then how much more our heavenly father? He asks us things, but he also supplies things. Or or imagine the foolishness after the government has said all this to you. uh, Never to contact them, to ask them for what you need. The government has offered you all you need, but you never ask them. Uh, for what you actually need to accomplish the project. No, you'd be straight on the phone, wouldn't you? You've asked me to build HS2. Well, I need X number of workers. I need X tons of concrete. Uh, I need X number of diggers and bulldozers. Or if you, if you were me, you'd be on the phone trying to get someone, how do you actually build a road, or a railway? Uh, you know, how do you, how do you do this? God equips us with what we need, including that wisdom that we need to do his will. But don't forget to ask them. Don't forget to ask him, sorry, for what we need. That's what the author is doing. He asks that God might equip them to do his will. But one problem we can have is when we try to do it ourselves, isn't it? We can go wrong. But the other problem comes when it's not his will we're trying to do. We have to be careful, don't we? God has revealed his will. He's revealed what he wants us to do. It's here in the Bible, God's will is not like a sanctified fortune teller that will tell you your future. God, God's will presents us with uh, his will in the present. Not the specifics of whom we shall marry, but how to live as a godly husband or wife. Not the specifics of what job we will have, but how to be a godly employee or employer. God calls us to godliness. And he will equip us with all that we need to do his will. His will. The energy to be a good mother. The patience to be a good neighbour. The strength to be a good church leader. That's more what he's talking about here. It may be that God makes it clear to us something that we should be doing. But we should make sure, before we start blaming God when it all goes wrong, that actually it's God's will in the first place. Not seeking our own will and trying to get God to agree with it, but actually looking for God's will in the word, in the Bible. And we have to be quite careful with God's will language, don't we? It can be dangerous if misused. I know someone who uh, he said once to a girl when he was a teenager that he believed it was God's will that they should marry him. And the girl quite rightly said, well, God hasn't told me that. Uh, and they didn't get married. But by saying it was God's will, it made it sound like to go against that person was to go against God. Or there's the tale in a, a biography I read of someone who had just started a church and a couple came one week And they've said, God has told us, it's God's will that we're to take over this church. And they had to decide what to do in this sort of early stage of the church. Again, they said, well, God hasn't spoken to the the elders of this church to say that's right. So please be careful with God's uh, will language. And let's concentrate on what the Bible concentrates on. How to please God in the present and trusting him for the future. So how does he equip us? We'll have a look again at verse 21. Equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. How does he equip us? He equips us through Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read this, I was expecting the Holy Spirit. You know, it will equip you by the Holy Spirit. After all, the Spirit is the one who gives us gifts in the church. Uh, He's the one who helps us to build up the church. So why Christ? Well, because this whole letter has been about the superiority of Christ. How Jesus is greater than all. And he's just being consistent, really, with what he said. And it's not like the two are mutually exclusive. After all, who is it who dwells in our hearts? Is it Jesus or is it the Spirit? Well, actually, the, the Bible uses both phrases. The Spirit is repeatedly described us as the Spirit of Christ. Who is it who grants gifts to the churches? Well, in Corinthians, it's primarily the Spirit. But in Ephesians, it's the risen Christ who gives gifts to his church. So Hebrews is just reminding us that Jesus is behind our equipping. God equips us through him. So all the things we need to do God's will, we receive through Jesus. Our strength, our energy. Our joy, our peace, our love, our faith, all come through Jesus, all to do God's will. So what is his will? What's in his mind here? Well, we've seen it all the way through the letter, and now we see it uh, as we close here, to encourage one another. Have a look at 22 to 25. And we'll look at this section more briefly. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly, like I'm preaching to you briefly, (laughs) Um, we should know that our brother. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he come, uh, With whom I will see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. God's will here is that we keep going, and we're to do that by encouraging one another. It's really tempting in this section to sort of put a heading of miscellaneous over the top isn't it? Sort of all these little things that seem to fit at the end. But there is a theme, and it's all to do with encouragement. He encourages them, literally, to bear with his encouragement. He encourages them to bear with his encouragement. Literally, that's what it means. The word encouragement, or encourage, or exhort, and exhortation, appears four times in this little section. It's not a common word, really, through the Bible, and it's hidden, unfortunately, in lots of translations, including this one. It's a reminder that we're to encourage one another, exhort one another. It's a reminder of Hebrews 3:13, "But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's a reminder of Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's been one of the huge messages of Hebrews. If you want to keep going, encourage one another. Keep encouraging one another. And here we see it right at the end of the letter. The whole letter is called his word of encouragement, his word of exaltation. This is really what he's been doing, writing to keep them going. And now this is what he wants them to do. Not to write scripture, but to use the message of scripture to encourage one another. To encourage one another to keep going. So he encourages them to bear with his encouragement. And he encourages them with news too. He shares what's happening with Timothy. Timothy's about the only person that's, it's not been claimed, as written Hebrews. Because we know that he's mentioned by name at the end. But Timothy here has been released from prison. If you think about it, that is an encouragement that's a bit mixed, isn't it? It's an encouragement because he's been set free, but it's a reminder to these Hebrews who are struggling under persecution that they might end up in prison as well. But it's an encouragement that he's now been released from there. And we can encourage one another with news too. That's one of the reasons that we do notices and we have prayer points on the back of the sheet. Why we share things at prayer meetings before we pray. I try not to call notices notices. I normally say this is what's happening because it's news, really. It's things to pray about, to be encouraged by, to rejoice together as a church. News is not enough, though, here in Hebrews. He actually wants to go there in person. Being with others is a great encouragement, isn't it? I found it really weird last week when I was at home, and you were watching me on the screen if you were here because I was I had a sickness bug. It's a real encouragement to be together, isn't it? So he's not content with just writing them a letter. He actually wants to be there with them. He tells them to greet the leaders and saints. Now, not that leaders and saints are a different sort of class of people. What he means by that is the whole church. The whole church is to be greeted by them, not the special few. And the church on the author's side send their greetings too. We see here a sort of love and mutual affection between these two churches. We don't know where they are, we don't know really who they are, but we can see the affection that they have for one another. Our love is to be broader than our own church boundaries. It doesn't consist of artificial groupings or statements of unity, the way that some people form organisations, but it consists of mutual love and affection and love in Christ. Those who share a love for the truth, and therefore they share a love for one another. So it's a reminder that we should be seeking to partner and love other churches that share a love for the truth. I know that as leaders we need to do this more and more, especially through our existing partnerships in the FIC and the Yorkshire Gospel Partnership, but we should be seeking to love and bless people from other churches. Because we said at the beginning, didn't we, that this whole chapter is about love, how we love one another as a church, how leaders are to love, how we're to love our leaders, How is to love other churches? But in all these things, God equips us to show the love that we need to. Whether it's the courage to speak an encouraging word to someone. Whether it be the grace to overlook a way someone has sinned against us. Whether it's persistence in prayer for one another. God equips us as we pastor one another. As we care for one another. If we're acting in love, then we won't be abusive as a pastor to one another, will we? As we care for one another. No, we'll love and care and pastor and shepherd one another as God wills. So let's pray that God would grant us that love uh, to love one another and to keep going uh, right to the end. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the way that he is better than all things. Father, thank you that his love is greater than any love any man ever had. And Father, thank you for his love towards us that sent him to the cross. Father, we pray that you'd help us to take up our cross daily as we love one another, as we shepherd one another, as we care for one another. Father, pray that you'd help us all uh, to make it to that great uh, end of the finish line. Uh, Father, for that joy that is beyond it. And Father, help us to help one another on the way. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.